0: Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast. Today we present the City Series with your host, Tim Williams. Hi, I'm Tim Williams and I'm your host for this series of Grimshaw Cities Podcasts. Cities were the future once, but are they still in this era of pandemic, which many think has raised fundamental questions about the very future of the urban? As someone who loves cities and has worked in and for cities internationally for many years, I give a resounding thumbs up to the city and its future. They've faced existential crises before and have had to change radically to suit new circumstances. But they did, and somehow always managed, in time, to reinvent themselves. London came back after the blitz and a mass exodus of its people to new towns outside the city. New York went bankrupt in the 70s, but by the 90s, was full of artists and young businesses relaunching the city. But is it different this time? Has COVID changed our cities irrevocably? Speeding up trends to home working and online retail with dramatic and long-term impacts on the CBDs of cities as generators of wealth? Will our suburbs be reinvented? And who anyway were our cities for before COVID? And in coming back, could they actually become better cities for more people? Can they become, again, cities for all? To help us answer these questions and to tell us what great things they're up to in making our cities even better, Grimshaw, itself a long-term contributor to the built environment in cities across the globe, invited 10 city shapers from all points on the compass to tell us what they think. Join me as I talk through cities now and tomorrow with distinguished, passionate, and engaging architects, designers, planners, developers, infrastructure providers, doyens of the creative and cultural sectors, urbanists and city leaders. These conversations are a delight to host, and I'm sure you will find them as insightful, important, and to be honest, as much fun as I did. There's a great spirit in these discussions and a desire to break down professional boundaries and any other kind in order to share experiences and learn as we all in our various ways and in our various cities, try not just to bounce back from this crisis, but I guess bounce forward. The optimism that with the right collaborations we can do this is shared by all who kindly took part in this exercise in civic discourse. That's the spirit Grimshaw has too. We know that no great building or place was the work of just one pair of hands. Our cities are the greatest exemplar of that truth. And this series is meant to, and we know the great people who have given up their time and ideas to make it happen actually do, embody that truth. I hope you enjoy this series. I think you will. So uh, I thought I'd start. and uh, Thank you very much for your time, Jonathan Rose. Where are you sitting, by the way?
1: I am sitting in my office in in my home in Garrison, New York, which is an hour north of New York City on the Hudson.
0: We should talk about uh, New York, New York City. I think in, in a while. I, I, I wanted to start off, uh, apart from thanking you for your time, by saying uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a fan, uh, and I will try and suppress uh, my fandom because I read the book uh, that you wrote, which has uh, got a brilliant title, "The Well-Tempered City: What Modern Science, Ancient Civilizations, and Human Nature Teach Us About the Future of Urban Life." And I'm a bit of an urbanist, and I've read a lot of books on books on cities. I think this is one of the best of the last 20 years, so congratulations on that. We'll talk a bit about that. Um, I note on your your website, uh, the the series I'm doing for uh, Grimshaw Cities is really talking to people who are either policy experts in cities or people who have built cities or done stuff in cities. You're a bit of both, I think. uh, You've done some great projects, which we're going to talk about, but you also bring a, a philosophy... To it and a set of values which I find very interesting and impressive. And I want to talk about all that. And I thought I'd start with your website, which is, I urge people to look at it, and we'll put a link on. Um, But it's got a section in it, which I don't think any other developer in the universe has got a section which is called What We Like section of books, lists of works that inform, inspire, and transform. And you've got, uh, more or less, my own hit list is pretty well covered. You've got Bach, Bob Dylan. Miles Davis, it's a bit of a, a blind spot on mine. jazz since the 40s, but we'll talk about this. Um, you've got books like a pattern language. You've got things by Peter C- Calthorpe. You know, I don't think anybody else has got a section called what we like, but I think it's great. Uh, but I thought I'd start with this one line of yours, that what you're, what you're up, up to as a company is interesting and I think really quite inspirational. Creating communities of opportunity. Let's start there. What's a, what's a community of opportunity? and what are you doing to create one, Jonathan Rose?
1: Thank you, great question. So first all, I want to talk about what's not a community of opportunity, because then we can talk about what okay. is. So the United States particularly, um, uh, it was kind of founded on a myth that we are a community, of that we are a place of opportunity. And for a time, a recent time, we tr- many times we have for many ways, but it's been very poorly distributed, so. For example, white men have had more opportunity than others throughout much of our history. But um, if you were born in 1940 and turned 26 in 1966, it was a unique time in which if you were born in a bottom income quartile, bottom quartile of income family, there was a 90% chance that you'd be earning more than your low-income parents. And this is across all races. That's the time when poor people, blacks who grew up in the South and sharecropper families moved to the North and got union, good union jobs, etc. Um, if you were born in the bottom quartile family in 1990 and turned 26 in 2016, there'd be a 70, and you're a 70% chance you'd be earning less than your low income parents. So we have gone from being a community a country of enormous opportunity to one that is less. And this we've actually seen across much of the developed world. So the question is why and how do we overcome this? And there are many, many systemic issues, but our theory is that number one, that transformation begins or opportunity begins with a platform of affordable housing, of safe, green, affordable housing. We know that people in America uh, over, uh, 20 million people spend more than 50% of their income on housing. And we know that for lower and working class people, that that taxes, that that leaves nothing left for other things. We define affordable housing as spending 30% of your income on housing. So when somebody moves from 50% to 30% of income being spent on housing, statistically, their lives extend by eight years, their kids do better in school, they're more likely to go to college, all kinds of things because that little bit of extra income. So we believe that opportunity starts with a platform of safe, green, affordable housing. The safe part is really important because affordable housing is often in more dangerous communities. And we know that violence leads to isolation, but it also leads to a whole series of what are called adverse childhood experiences. We know there's a whole now uh, issue about the, the cognitive toxicity that comes from trauma. And green is really important because not only does living in greener buildings have lower operating costs for residents, saving them important money, but equally importantly, we build very non-toxic places. And we have families, for example, that come to us and say their kids were doing very badly in school because they're missing 30% of the days because they're out with asthma when they moved to our projects, which have no VOCs and healthy materials inside, that the kids' asthma went away. Okay, so Safe Green Affordable Housing is the platform. We now know that the constituents of opportunity include elements such as access to great healthcare. So all of our projects have um, health exam rooms and we partner with local healthcare agencies so that people can get health services on site. So imagine you're a, a single working mom with several kids and, you know, we don't have babysitters of how are you going to get to the doctor or how are they going to get to the doctor, but if the health service is on site, it helps. We have computer rooms and after-school education programs. We have a whole series of things, access to healthy food. We have a voter registration program. We have a whole series of programs that are all designed uh, to help our give the, our residents the constituents of opportunity. Let me say one more thing, Okay, and that is in the United States, There are literally districts, physical places, zip codes, where statistically the residents will live to 60 years of age or 80 years of age or even 90 years of age. Those can be a mile or two apart. So in essence, what we're trying to do is create mini zip codes of opportunity in each one of our buildings.
0: See, I love that. I I grew up um, in a public housing estate in South Wales. and Actually, it was 80% public housing and it was general needs. Housing in a way, so the the community was quite uh, integrated. Right, right? Uh, it was kind of almost a cross-class kind of community. So I I know what great housing can do as a kind of platform for my own career, if you like. And I'm I'm very I'm very interested in what you say. I also find it fascinating. You've got a great thing on your website which says I can't remember who it is now. You'll tell me. But somebody once said uh, that uh, good management is about doing the thing right, and great leadership is about doing the right thing. You seem to be trying to do both, um, and you seem to be succeeding at doing um you know, um doing well by doing good. Uh, right. you've also got a mixed use I, I I think the phrase doesn't really sum up the community of opportunity idea, but you know, you you are actually not just a developer of apartments, you you put you've got a school, I think, a charter school in one of uh, your
1: projects. Well, and soon to be in two. So yeah. we really believed in mixes of use, mixes of incomes, lots of parks and open space adjacent and as close as possible to mass transit and green buildings that are walkable to neighborhoods. So they were trying to mix all that up and that makes our projects more resilient. Um, So yes, the whole issue has been to design the business model around around creating real estate that we really believe in um, and we've been able we've been able to do that what's interesting is that affordable housing is actually much more resilient than market rate housing so for example yeah. we we work in cities such as new york san francisco la washington boston um, seattle these are places that are quite prosperous and so the difference between the market rent and the affordable rent is very significant and this means that our properties, because they're basically affordable and working class properties are always filled and we have very long waiting lists. So occupancy is much less of a concern for us. Um, uh, so what we've basically been able to do is to figure out where are the sweet spots in the economic model.
0: That's what I find fascinating. The, the, it's, it's, you know, a lot of people can have the ambition to do what you're doing, but you've managed to make a, a very successful business out of it. And I think also, that you're very resourceful in where you get where you see the income streams coming from, I think you know i I notice that you've got some pro. i think I think it if I'm, I may have misunderstood this, but you know you've got your usual uh, kind of developer excellence and experience and all that kind of stuff, but I think you're very good at spotting um you know with the way that public-private collaboration could right. could take place. That seems to be a big part of your thinking. is that right
1: absolutely and so all of our work is in some way or other subsidized. Yeah because we're not really only carrying out our goals, but we're carrying out what we think yep. is best for the common good and so yep. we have to partner with uh, all kinds of different public agencies to make our our work work.
0: And does that mean that you when you the people you employ, you know they're, they're, they're not just the usual suspects as it were, you you try to bring them up to be aware of this kind of diversity of of partners and income
1: streams? So yes, so the people who work for us are um uh, deeply interested in affordable housing and in social goals and environmental goals, so we're very much a mission-based company, and we have uh, we are strong on the, we attract mission-based people.
0: You are listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host
1: Tim Williams.
0: So we we were just talking about um, the people that you work with you and and uh, the kinds of. Things that they are passionate about. I mean, what comes across, by the way, is this combination of, you know, it's funny because I've worked in business and the public sector, and because I, you know, I, I come from a certain kind of background. I'm pretty passionate about what affordable housing can do to create uh, stability and and good mixed communities and all that kind of stuff. I'm still very keen to understand how how things are, are done because um, the aspiration is one thing, but the the the, the wit and the wisdom to go with is another and i think the capacity to work with public bodies in your world must be a really important part of your of your of your business
1: it's a key part of the business and what's even more complicated is that in the united states we have some national programs yeah uh, but they all have local applications and the national programs are insufficient to create any projects so we always have to blend national resources very often state resources and local resources and the rules are all different, and they all come with very complicated – they're not designed to naturally marry together. My most complicated project had 23 sources of financing. There you go. And a typical one will have six to 12. Yeah. And in many ways, the requirements of one program are antithetical to another, and so we have to create all these clever contrivances uh to work around them. Now, I'm not the only one who does this. I'm part of a whole affordable housing sector. You know, I'm part of an industry, um, and uh, it's an industry I'm very proud to be part of. I'm not the only one who's doing no, this work. There's lots of others, too.
0: But it's interesting. The, um, there's a kind of Euclidean simplification in, uh, in most develop, development. The people, you know, yeah. inevit- inevitably look for, you know, separate zoning, and they look for very simple vanilla kind of projects, and I, I'm not knocking that, it's just that it leads to your point, one of the points in your book is about the pleasing nature of complexity. You know, yes. the, uh, that it actually, when we avoid complexity, we kind of avoid life, um, you know, and I think that I really like that philosophy. I'm going to ask you a bit about um, your own history to this point, in a sense, because, um, and I urge people to read the book, you know, the book is, it's, it's funny, you know, I, I'm much criticized, not least by my wife, for putting things on LinkedIn that appear not to belong to LinkedIn. So I will <laughs> put on my musical interests uh, a lot, and the books that I'm reading and all this kind of stuff. And I, I'm really delighted, I urge people to read your book, because it's got a lot of uh, stuff in there about your own background, your own thinking about spirituality, uh, your own thinking about economic models, but environmental models, and how you bring it all together. So I, I'm I'm going to ask you, I'm going to come back to some projects, um, because I want people to understand also that some of the some of the architectural excellence. gonna before I come to your the book, I'm going to read this one thing, which is great, great from your website. But it's from the New York Times uh, architect about Via Verde, which I personally just in, because Grimshaw were involved with you in doing that. And the, the New York Times architect uh, critic, who presumably knows something about these matters, says the rebirth of the South Bronx isn't news, but Via Verde is. It makes as good an argument as any new building in the city for the culture and civic value of architecture. Now, I know architecture isn't everything, but that's a bloody good thing for anybody to say about one of your buildings. I, I'm, I'm assuming that, um, and I've noticed, you, you do get quite a good, I'm not just saying this, you do get quite a lot of compliments for the kind of, um, you know, what you're, what you're trying to do, what you're actually doing on the ground, which is changing lives. Um, so, I'm going to ask you about that and then go to the background. Do you get, um, do you find out what people say about you know, your buildings who live there and about the experiences that they have?
1: So, yes. And by the way, that's ultimately who we're designing for is yeah. for the residents and the neighbors. And so, this whole everything I described about communities of opportunity, where it comes from, is low income people are typically, in one way or another, being challenged with what's the matter with you when you're filling out applications for subsidies or for um, food stamps or whatever. You know, we're always being, local people are always being asked, what's the matter with you? And we turn it around and say, what matters to you? So what was interesting is the way, I'll give, just give you an example, the way Via Verde was a public competition. It was a competition run by Sean Donovan, who later became the Secretary of Housing of the United States, but then was the Secretary of Housing of New York City. And it was a comp- global competition to come up with a new vision for what would be the greenest, uh, new version of affordable housing? Uh, and, um, it was a long, narrow site and they got it down to five. And we were not allowed to talk to the community, um, uh, because they wanted somehow to keep this pure or whatever. So, uh, but then when they got it down to five finalists and we were one of those, they, um, had us all attend a community meeting. In which we, they, we could listen to the community's feedback on concepts. And, um, uh, and during that meeting, we, uh, I heard residents say, well, they asked the residents, well, what would you really like? And that resident said, I'd like a jacuzzi. And everybody laughed. <laughs> but what I heard in that was what the resident was saying was, I want to be treated with respect. Yeah. And I want to have a quality that I associate with wealthy people. And I want to enhance my health. And so we took, so what you hear from communities isn't, sometimes it translates very, very directly. And sometimes you have to understand what's the meaning behind it. Um, yeah. So the one of the other things that um we feel in the, and so the article you quoted when the, um, building opened, it was on the front page of the New York Times, which is not typically where openings of new affordable housing projects yeah. are are taking place. Um, so, it, it, several things, Via Verde, which um, was designed by two great firms, Grimshaw and a local New York firm called Datner, and Grimshaw yep. is also local to New York too, but we put these two firms together in the we. So I co-developed it with a not-for-profit called Pips. So there were, in effect, Pips and Rose on the development side, and Grimshaw and Datner on the architecture side. Yeah. And um the project, uh, th- there were three things that I would say that shifted in the landscape of affordable housing before and after that project. And the first one was that we we said that good design mattered before um, Via Very, although there were some very good well-designed affordable housing projects. In general, the agencies that sponsored them felt that the goal was to make them as inexpensive as possible. So it was really, how can we spread our money around as best we can to develop the most affordable housing? Yep. And so architectural distinction was not part of that field. And after the uh, uh, the great recognition that Villa Verde got, cities began to say, we're going to make architecture an important part of the brief. So after you see a flourishing of really great designed affordable housing. The second thing is the uh, that it really put making a green building. It highlighted that. And before that, although there were definitely green affordable housing projects, afterwards, green became much more important. And the third thing is that it's actually a mixed income project. So it's two-thirds low-income rental and one-third middle-income co-op much more complicated to finance. And what we had hoped is that that third quality of it too would be more widely duplicated than it has been.
0: You are listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. So the um, uh, one of the things that leads off from that is the quality of what you just did. I think it's interesting that if people think that I'm talking to a small developer. You You own 15,000, Rental units, I think, is that correct?
1: Um, or one of your one
0: of the companies?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no. The website said that, but it's up to seventeen. So yes, <laughs> up to what number? Seventeen thousand. Yeah, so yeah. Yes.
0: So you know, this is I don't, what I I understand about that as well. well is that when you own, when you own rental, you care about the quality of it because you have to own it for the long term. Um, we we have a problem in the UK and in Australia sometimes of I don't want to get too technical, but the build it and bugger off model. Of, right of of development, whereas you know if you develop and you rent, you have to make sure it's pretty good, eh
1: yes, so uh you but also that's the whole purpose. I mean, our purpose is I love building and I love the design process and the whole development process, but but we're creating it, yeah that, that when it's completed, that's the beginning of the next phase, not the end, okay um. So point. yes, and and remember, we're in it to grow communities of opportunity. So the real goal yeah. that I really hope happens: we develop a project, and a family moves in, and thirty years later, those families have the capacity to be my investors. There you go. <laughs> really no, looking,
0: you will you will have really succeeded. I think. I think it's a very good,
1: or or at least the mayor of the city who can then you know give me grief. <laughs>
0: But I, uh, you also said something interesting the other day about your, I think you you did a presentation about Highland Park in Denver, I think. It's yes, the, I, Highland and, Garden Village. The Highland Garden Village, sorry. And, uh, but you made the point about gentrification. Somebody asked a question about gentrification. And you said something like um, that perhaps one of the answers is that people on low incomes can actually get affordable ownership. Uh, and so, within, right. and I, I'd like you to say a bit more about that because I think that's a really interesting point.
1: So um I happened to have lived in Soho in the 1970s in New York when it was a very inexpensive place to live because the manufacturing industry was moving out and the artists were moving in, but they were not yet prosperous artists. So it's a really cool, interesting place. And you could rent an apartment, a loft with like 5,000 square feet for a couple hundred dollars a month. And you could buy, 5,000 square feet for maybe fifty thousand dollars. So the debate was, so what should you do? And people said, oh, the rent's so cheap, why should I buy? Those who get, bought a 5,000 square foot a loft for fifty thousand dollars that today is worth five or ten million dollars are able to live happily ever after. The gentrification that happened to the neighborhood rose with them because they had equity in it. And those who were renters were displaced. Yeah. So uh There was a lesson, Then that was in my 20s when I lived there, so the lesson was early on that when gentrification displaces, it's not good, but when people have equity in a community before it gentrifies and they benefit, they can then benefit from its growth. Now, we do not have many, a program that we were able to create affordable home ownership uh in Via Verde was created under Mayor Bloomberg and ended by Mayor de Blasio. So, we don't really have the tools to create in New York and in most other cities to create affordable home ownership. And so, it's one of the, uh, it's, it's on my list of something to try and figure out.
0: Well, it's interesting because the, I used to work as the housing advisor to UK governments back in the day uh, under the Blair government. And we did quite a lot around shared equity uh, mm-hmm. projects. And they're not easy to do, but they are worth doing, I think. I think the whole rent to buy If you can get into that kind of trajectory, that sounds like a a great thing to achieve socially, but I don't quite know how the business models stack up.
1: Right. There's a business model issue with it, but there's also – so one of the things – that people need a certain amount of income to be a homeowner because along with home ownership comes yeah. leaky roofs that need to be repaired and taxes that need to be paid and all kinds of stuff and and if your income is too low those things you are not most likely not going to have the capacity to afford those things and that will set that sets families back so um yeah now you, again sorry. I'm talking about wait, I just want to make it clear you know i'm basically talking about the developed world context so in the developing world you know there's the elemental model which is yeah. really a wonderful one yeah. which you build you help a family build one room that has all the utilities and everything but it's designed so over time they can add more and more to it um there are so i actually believe that home ownership models that come without debt are really good for lower income people
0: i, I agree with that completely it's interesting i agree pushing an interest, not not to copy the model, but I'm interested in the Singapore model where they effectively enable shelter leading to home ownership um, through the intervention of government. Builder, the government builds the homes, rents them out, and that gets amortized into a mortgage effectively over time. I'm not, I'm not saying replicate all that. It's just kind of interesting that that can be done. I want to ask you... I, by is, the
1: way, I, I love the Singapore model. Oh, good because for you. The Singapore, because of, because the Singapore model actually says that once you're working, your pension system pays for your health care and your home. Yeah. And, all, and then they have an amazing system where when you turn 65, the government buys your home from you at its appreciated value. That gives you a chunk of money that you can then live off for the rest of your life. You have a life estate in the home, but they get the appreciation. So let's say they buy it from you at 65. If you die when you're 85, You had a low cost place to live in a bunch of cash and they got the appreciated value and they have figured out magically how to make it all work.
0: They're just very clever people. And I think uh, but also it's not it's not in a sense, it's not that clever if you've got the right ethos, uh, which it was essentially that they they knew what they wanted to achieve. And I think it's a perfect example from your book, actually, of a kind of coming together of Confucianism, social democracy and, and good capitalism. Uh, in In one place to produce socially beneficial ends by by using very clever market and non market means I like it all um I would, a couple of thoughts the uh you 've just been like we 've been through um a horrendous fifteen months uh in particularly in in some of the biggest cities. I want to talk a bit about your own experience as a firm in that in that because I should have started there really but uh i have you been building have you been d- developing?
1: So, uh, yes, we have been developing. So by the way, a much larger activity of ours is in addition to developing the larger activity is we have a series of investment funds, private equity funds that buy existing affordable housing. We preserve it as affordable. We make it green and we bring our social health and education programs to our residents. So uh, what we, that buying has been at a slower pace because with COVID, it's been difficult to do the due diligence, but we have figured out how to do that and have been buying and um we had projects that were in construction that got slowed down a little bit but they happened to have be been in the part of constructions that was for the first year there was the open air the foundation's more open air part, parts of it and so our construction proceeded also
0: and um are you uh i was i thought i would ask you a bit about the Covid and cities question yeah uh, almost impossible to to know the the answer really, but uh, uh, let 's talk about some of the issues um, so we, we, in Australia, we feel part of a kind of uh, international discussion about the future of the urban uh, and indeed some people have been questioning the very future of the urban the uh, the model that we 've seen over the last twenty thirty years of city centers and CBds and close to these areas being repopulated um, you know in most cities in the world by the 1980s, um, city centres were pretty empty. Um, you know, uh, the, the jewel in the crown of Australian urbanism is kind of Melbourne. It's just, well, there heresy to say that sitting in Sydney, but essentially it's kind of true. But they they, they had an empty city centre back in the uh, ni- 1980s. Nobody lived there. Um, so they went through that cycle of now 40,000 people living in within walking distance of the offices of the CBD and all that stuff. But they've gone very, very quiet and, and it's quite a downbeat kind of place at this point in time because COVID has really hit. That community heart. so people are talking rather fundamentalist way around you know it's the end of C B Ds it's the end of city centres it's the rebirth of suburbia Um, and Joel Kotkin who I actually admire in most uh, most senses is is uh, but he's really out there now sort of playing a very kind of suburban sort of uh, uh, critique having said all the above where do I think it's going I think it might be going where you say in your book by the way around that um, some of the mega cities before COVID, probably did need to have four or five uh, decentralized centers, and I think that may be where this discussion goes. What what do you think about that? Optimist, pessimist, uh, opportunity for renewal, what do you think?
1: So totally opportunity for renewal. So by the way, in the 1980s, I was in Melbourne, and I was brought there uh, by an agency that that Melbourne was actually bidding for, I can't remember 1996, I can't remember, one of the future Olympics. It was a finalist, but it didn't make it. And the goal was how could we use this as an opportunity to actually create housing for the city? And that's what I was asked to help advise on. So uh, it's a very, it is a beautiful city. Beautiful city. And And my sense is that cities are not gonna go away. However, we are going to see a distribution, uh, to more modest size, instead of the mega, well, we're going to have mega cities too, and we're going to have global mega cities, but that we're seeing New York and Chicago, and I think even LA having population declines and we're seeing places like the more, definitely Denver has been growing at a thousand people yeah. a week, et cetera. Yeah. So the mid-sized cities, which may be more livable. And I think, I actually think that redistribution is good. Um uh, also, what happens is so I described living in Soho in New York in the nineteen seventies when everything was so inexpensive, it was so easy for people to just creatively start things you know and just rent a little space and you know space wasn't the issue um, so the cities really became cauldrons of opportunity and I think as as our cities calmed down a little bit uh, and prices deflate a little bit now. Uh, I'm going to counter that, but you create more generative capacities. So I think that's a really good thing. The reason I'm hesitating is that already in New York City, literally in the last, from December, January, when it was very hard to rent apartments, and landlords are giving away four months concessions, and here it is just June, and they're not giving away concessions. And so the market's completely shifted in this. So people are coming back to cities. I think one of the important lessons of COVID actually for cities is that it exposed the under, it exposed what we call the essential workers. So these are the people who work in hospital emergency rooms, but also the people who stock our grocery store shelves and all that. We realized how important they are. And what I hope comes out of it is first of all, some economic justice. So a higher minimum wage. And these are people who very often uh, their employers were optimizing time use. So like they may have a morning shift one day and an afternoon shift another way and an evening shift another day, which is a horrible way to raise a family and make sure your kids are doing homework and have dinner with them, et cetera. So I hope that that goes away and that we actually, the respect we show them is actually through fair wagers and fair uh, working conditions. Uh, I think.
0: I love all, I love all that because, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I mean, I'm very enthusiastic about this. The rediscovery that we actually have a working class right. out there. Uh, who's not been doing it that easily. Uh, and I think that might be almost the most important thing to come out of this COVID experience, is that we weren't all in it together, actually. I think your point also that the cities were not necessarily going in entirely the right direction before COVID hit, and that the, there was a bit of a need for the reset, <laughs> reset button to some degree was, is right. What do you also think about this? Some people are talking about the potential. It's a bit like New York recovering from the 70s, 80s. As it, I went to New York in 1980. I was excited to be there, but it was a pretty scary place in the 80s. I went back in 2005 and I just thought it obviously was a city transformed, but it got more expensive and all that kind of stuff. Artists came in in the 70s and 80s to, to replenish the city centres, as it were. Do you think you might see a kind of, people are talking about a, a euthification again, that as rents went down in terms of office rents and stuff, you get new unis, users rather than no users?
1: I don't know because, as I said, we're seeing the rents going back up yeah. much more yeah. quickly than we yeah. thought. And yeah. and I just yeah. read something, I didn't read it really carefully, but it said that office sublet space is getting into shortage. So, you know, there's a sense that the offices yeah. are coming back. So the great shift of we're going to have office buildings turned into housing and we're going to have hotels turned into homeless shelters and all that, no, that didn't happen and it's not likely to happen. Do you
0: think, though, that uh, some of the offices will be – seventy percent occupied rather than hundred percent occupied. So there'll be some redesign going on. But you basically think that the moment passed in terms of radical redesign and that actually. So there's no so there's a
1: redesign. To... So for example, before COVID we were looking to expand our office space in New York City. We had run out of space. We now say that we expect there'll be some we want people to come back to the office, but they may be back three or four days a week and not five. We want the office to be much more collaborative and we are creating many more hoteling spots. So for example, here's the truth. I typically may have been in the office a day a week because I was traveling the country to meet investors. i traveling the country to we have projects all around the country maybe i was there two days a week it varied you know i mean there would be weeks and i'd be there the whole time but there are weeks there there could be two weeks there i was and i'd be working like crazy but not in the office so i have said i don't need a private office because i'm you really look at my days i'm not there enough let's turn it into a shared space and and when i'm there i'll be one of the shares and when i'm not there it'll so we're going to use our at the bottom line is we're going to where we redesigned our office to be able to use it much more efficiently. So although we're not shrinking in size, we we're, we're stopped the idea of expanding. Um, so I think you're going to see more collaboration space, more things like that.
0: I think you're also going to see more attempts by city politicians and bureaucrats to actually attract people back to the city centers. So there'll be a lot more programming activation schemes going on. I think there'll be an attempt. To restore confidence right. by doing interesting thing, interesting things, uh, with our city, our cities, I, I hope. Now, I've got two very small, well, they're not small, two things to end on that I'd like to talk to you about. One is uh, for you to come back to, which is <clears throat> your current projects and future projects, and where you want to, what what you want to be famous for in the next five years. And then the second thing I want to go start with actually, is that <clears throat> you you bring such a lot of. I think it's really important to bring. One's culture—it's going to sound very pompous—but one's culture to the table, you know. The uh, <clears throat> that um, in in doing your point about doing the job, the right job, and then doing the job right—that I, I think it's very important. That what I like in what you do is that you've you've read and absorbed a lot of influences, and I think you make a genuine attempt, if I might say so, to incorporate in what you do the values that you've acquired. So I'd just like to say a little bit about what are they, those fellas? Where did you get them from? You've uh, you've been on a journey. and Was there a moment where you became this person and then decided to do this kind of work? What, what happened? So I'm going to
1: answer the project. I'll answer them in sequence. Okay. Yes, okay. So your question <laughs> of what's the next project. So it's in construction now. It's called Sendero Verde. Um, it is a joint venture with another firm called LM, LM Development Partners and a community group called Akasha Network. It's in East Harlem. It's a full city block. It is 700 units of housing. So Via Verde was 200 and something. So, um, three times as big. 700 units of housing. Um, it ranges from formerly homeless to middle income. It's the largest passive house project in the United States. Um, very, very green, very well-insulated, designed by Handel Architects. And um, one of the things I have long tried to do in all my projects is have everything designed in Fibonacci proportions, and it beautifully is. And it incorporates not only all this housing, but a 50,000 square foot charter school, uh, kindergarten to eighth grade, and a lot of uh, the whole community center with after school programs and senior programs and health programs and job training programs for community gardens, an amphitheater, a science park, uh, an art center, and, and much more. So we're trying to, in new construction, really model um, this idea of community of opportunity. So that's that. So now, I have to answer your values question, I'm very lucky because I was born with a calling. And um although I spent much of my twenties, which kind of figured this out. So the first thing is, I was grew up in the suburbs, and I had access to nature, and there was a little nature preserve near where I lived, and I spent a lot of time playing there, and I really loved nature, but I and still do. But also felt very much a threat from development and pollution and humanity. Then The second thing was, I grew up. I was born in 1952. I came of age in the late fifties, early sixties. And, um, my mother was very involved in the civil rights movement. And the idea of social justice was very, very important to me, important in our household. But, you know, I pained at the idea of injustice and racial inequality. And the third thing is my father was a real estate developer and he, he loved to build. And on weekends, I would go with him to his construction sites and do walkthroughs and punch lists and when i had school days off i would go with him and actually and you know see his work and i loved that too so i always wanted to figure out how do i put these things together um the, the environment uh social justice and building and it wasn't e- easily apparent and I did a lot of soul searching and wrestling. What should I do with my life? And should I be a lawyer and sue for social good? Or, you know, like I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to put the pieces together. And it, and it took, you know, it began to slowly take shape as an idea when I finished college. Um, I then went to work for a family business, my family business, and I learned the trade of building, uh, of developing, and at the same time, I volunteered for a local community or not-for-profit and learned a lot about social services and building daycare centers and parenting centers and homeless shelters and things that are the infrastructure of communities. And probably the 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 light was in 1987, I joined a group called the Social Venture Network, and this is an emerging group of young social entrepreneurs. It was Ben and Jerry of Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream and Anita and Gordon Roddick who'd founded The Body Shop, a guy named John Mackey who had found one store called Whole Foods that eventually grew to be this whole chain and many others. And they truly inspired me and it struck me that if they could do this in what were essentially consumer and food goods, I should be able to do it in in real estate. And uh, that's what really helped me kind of... See how all these pieces might fit together, and try and invest. But what I think
0: is, what I I would I wanted to ask you a bit about, and then I I'll, I'll probably do something like a summary if you don't mind. But uh, how about this? Uh, you add um, a bit of Buddhism and a bit of Bach and a bit of Bob Dylan uh, into the whole thing. W- w- your book is called the Well Tempered City, and tell us a bit about what you mean by well tempered.
1: So it's a long, complicated thing about the history of temperament, but essentially. Um, music western music uh from uh the time of pythagoras on with the all instruments were tuned to pythagorean perfection which is um and what it meant was the notes were the notes were uh in tune with a golden mean but and golden proportions but you couldn't go from one key to another there was a, a dissonance that happened and a system of tuning came out of china and across asia and, and hit europe in the uh, late, eight, late 1600s, about 1680. It was called temperament, and it was kind of a compromise between the different keys. There was So no key was perfectly tuned, but they're tuned good enough so you can go from key to key. And that unleashed this vast amount of music, and Bach wrote, loved it. But at the same time, the clavier, the forerunner, of the piano was invented. So in effect, view it as a new uh, technology and a new operating system came together. And to express it, Bach wrote, A guide called the Well Tempered Clavier, and then uh, in 1720 and 1740, wrote Well Tempered Clavier Book Two, which is the update. And what he was trying to do is that in it he demonstrates he actually has every minor and major key playable on the piano, and his goal is to show how this all works. So I view it as Bach was a deeply spiritual man, so in effect he took the beautiful, vast, interdependent nature of the universe. And he manifested it in this incredible demonstration um, on Earth uh, through this extraordinary music. And that, to me, should be all of our mission, which is to really um, revel in the magnificent glory of the nature of the universe and the beautiful intricacies and interwovenness of our ecologies, and then figure out how to manifest that. Uh, on Earth, so I took the idea of the well-tempered clavier and turned it into the well-tempered city. Look, I think it's a great
0: point to end, and thank you very much for your time. I think everybody listening will be want to go away and uh, have a look at the book, have a look at the website, have a look at the projects that you've been doing. I think, I think we'd all quite like to live in the well-tempered city, and actually, I wouldn't mind living in one of your affordable apartments uh, in a community of opportunity. I just thought I'd end by. Saying it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Um, and it's, it's great. You know, you, you read stuff by people and you have a look at their website and you just don't really know. But I do, I can tell totally that this has been your great, genuine passion and you've created some fantastic developments and long may it continue. I, I wanted to end with, with a reflection that I, I think we probably need to proliferate you. We need a, we need a few more, uh, people out there. I hope you're being an inspiration to other people to set up their own businesses. I have to tell you, inside me, it's rather like sometimes I still think I'm going to play uh, for the Welsh rugby team at the age of 64, but I'm probably not. I would st- really now want to leave this conversation, go out and do some community of opportunity development uh, somewhere, because inspired by this conversation, can Jonathan Rose, guy. thank you very much indeed uh, for taking part in our, in our podcast? Well, today.
1: thank you so much. I very much enjoyed it. And by the way, you can go out and create great. Beer. You're with Grimshaw. Yes. Grimshaw is doing extraordinary work all over the world, so of course you can.
0: Of course. good. a very good point to end. Thank you very much indeed, Thank Tom. you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jonathan Rose. And what better way to finish today, having talked to a guy whose website not only recommends that you read lots of books, but actually has lots of music that he suggests that you should listen to, what better way to end than to play a piece of music performed by the author indeed of the well-tempered city and his mates uh, in his band and they're playing summertime so enjoy and we'll see you again You've been listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City series, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in this series from your favourite
1: podcast provider.